0: Well, I'd like for you to consider with me for a moment. What's the best walk up or pump up music you know? The sort of music that, that really gets you prepared. Think about going to Minute Maid Park, maybe to watch the Strohs back in the days when we used to be able to do that sort of thing. And uh, your favorite hitter coming up and they've got the music, the song selected that gets them geared up, ready to swing for the fences. Or consider the, the heavyweight fighter that's getting ready for the title match, that's got his Beats headphones on in the back, bouncing around, listening to that song, that song that stirs them up and prepares them for battle. I know for my oldest son, Natural by Imagine Dragons does it every time. Driving to football games, that's what we listen to on the way, windows down, music up, because sometimes we just need that soundtrack. Music does something to us. It gets down in our bones and it... It enlivens us. It prepares us for what awaits. And many times we we try to do the same thing: create the right soundtrack to our lives that prepares us for what's coming. It may be that you, when you're getting ready for a a big business appointment, a big test, a sales meeting, you might pull a Dwight Schrute in your Pontiac Trans Am, listen to some Motley Crue. Just yes, you know. There's this idea of like we sometimes we just need the right song for the right moment. And the reality that I have been meditating on this this week leading up to Easter is this. Jesus had a playlist. He had songs that he listened to, that in certain moments he would go back to, and out of his playlist, which in, in many ways is the book of the Psalms that we have been reading through and praying through as we're seeking God in this confusing time of a pandemic, we realize that there's one song out of the whole of the Psalter that Jesus meditated on and hummed and sung back to his own heart more than any other, the week of his suffering and of his resurrection. It was the song that he came to that, that began to be the backdrop, the soundtrack to the climactic events of his life the climactic events of his death as he was betrayed by those close to him, as his disciples scattered, as he suffered the brutalization of Roman soldiers, as he was whipped and humiliated and pinned to a tree, as he was bleeding and as he was dying, the song that he had been meditating all week that I believe led him into that moment and then led him into the glory of a tomb ripped open as he declared victory over death. I believe there was one song that the text bears out that he was meditating on more than any other. It was Jesus' pump-up song. Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is the psalm that was sung over Jesus on the Sunday when he rode into town, known as Palm Sunday. The people sang it over him when they said, Hosanna, they were quoting from Psalm 118. When he encountered the Pharisees in the middle of the week teaching them about the importance of what was coming in his death, he quoted from Psalm 118 the song that was running through his mind saying the stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. And incidentally, this would have been the last song that he and the disciples sang after the Last Supper as he walked out to the Garden of Gethsemane where he was going to be arrested and where the great atrocities of the crucifixion were going to follow. And so the invitation this Easter morning is this. We're going to labor to sing Jesus's playlist after him. As we meditate on the song that was running through Jesus's mind and heart, I think what we will come to is a realization of The the grand conclusions that his soul anchored into that Easter meant for him as he was meditating on what was happening real time, singing this in his own heart. There were three conclusions that he would have come to, I believe, from this text that we're going to sing behind him. And we're going to come in touch with the theme of the entire psalm. So I'm going to read a couple of specific verses from this psalm and invite you to follow with me. But just before I read those verses, let me just establish that the theme of this entire psalm that Jesus was singing throughout Passion Week was that the steadfast love of God endures forever. And the way that the psalmist knows that is because God delivers through distress. It's actually in the midst of distress that the deliverance of God shows up with such power and such beauty that we know, along with the psalmist and along with Jesus, who sang this psalm through his Passion Week, is that we know the love of God when he delivers through distress not around it, not in spite of it, not avoiding it, but right in the midst of distress, he delivers. And that's how we know that his steadfast love endures forever. And so with that being said, I want to direct your attention to the climax of this Psalm that I believe would have led Jesus to some critical conclusions as to what Easter week really meant and the grand scope of things. Psalm 118, look at verses 17 through 24 with me. And just before I read, permit me to remind you what the prophet Isaiah says about the scriptures. He says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. We would be really wise to pay attention. Psalm 18, starting in verse 17. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and you have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is the the climax of that pump-up song that Jesus has been meditating on. And in it, we get three this statements. They are conclusion statements that the psalmist is coming to and saying, okay, this, this, this. And he's stating three things that are true because of God's deliverance through distress. And I believe these three statements would have been lit on fire and the heart and the mind of Jesus as he walked through the distress of Passion Week and experienced the deliverance of Easter Sunday morning. And I long for these three conclusions, these three truths to be lit ablaze in our hearts as well. The first, the first is this. Did you see it in verse 20? This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. What is it that the psalmist is saying here. In the verses just before, he was talking about entering into the temple. These are the gates of the temple. This is the gates that where the righteous come in. But then in verse 20, he drills down a little bit further, not just saying, open to me the gates of righteousness, as he said in verse 18, but he says, this is the gate of the Lord by which the righteous will enter. Which raises the question, what is he referring to when he says this? He had been talking about the physical temple, but now he's talking about a very specific gate and he says, this is the gate. And the this is referring to what has come in the verses previous. He is referring to the suffering of the one that has come to to walk through the difficulty and to be delivered through the distress. The this he is referring to starts in verse 10 up above and it says this, all nations surrounded me. In verse 11, he says, they surrounded me. They surrounded me on every side. In verse 12, he says, they surrounded me like bees. They went out like fire among the thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. He says, I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. He goes on to say in verse 18 that we already read that the Lord disciplined me severely. And then at the conclusion of working through all of the distress of this particular faithful servant that was going through distress, what he said is this. He says, this suffering is the gate by which the righteous will enter. Do you hear what the psalmist is doing? Do you hear that as Jesus is humming and singing and meditating on this hymn throughout the week, I have to believe that it was the last song that he sang as he's going into his suffering, that as he begins to be arrested, tried with a total miscarriage of justice, he's stripped He's beaten, he's humiliated, he's spat upon and brutalized. I have to believe that he's meditating on these words and all of a sudden what has been true, what he's been singing, it has lit a blaze in his soul as he says, this is the gate of the Lord by which the righteous are going to enter into his presence. What he realized was that our connection to God is not built on a holy place. Some sacred space where we gin up a, a religious experience, It wasn't about just being at the temple. And thank God in a season like this, where we can't gather in a single place, our connection to God is not about some religious experience in a holy space. Your connection to God is a matter of what Jesus has accomplished for you. Our connection to God is relational, and it was secured by the suffering of Jesus. And it raises this question, how can that be? He goes on to describe in the verses after saying this, I thank you that you answered me in verse 21. You have become my salvation. And then he says this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. How is it that Jesus is the point of entry into God's presence? He says, it's this way. I was the stone that the builders rejected that has become the cornerstone. One night this, this week, my middle son asked a very pointed and wise question at bedtime. He said, "Dad, but why did Jesus have to die? What actually happened at the cross?" I thought, oh. I said, "Son, that is the question. We won't understand how to live in this life or the life to come until we've understood the answer to that question." He said, "God is a perfect judge on a throne who is upholding perfect justice." And because we are sinners, because we are not perfect, because we have rebelled against God and chosen ourselves over God, there is a price to be paid for sin. But because that sin is against an eternal God and a perfectly glorious court, the price for that sin is too great. We will never be able to pay it back. We'll never be good enough. We'll never be able to earn his presence. But the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. When Jesus was rejected, and placed on a cross, his precious blood, each drop of it more holy, more valuable than anything else we could muster in the world, it paid the price for the sin of humanity. He had to die to pay the price for you and for me. You see, our entry into the presence of God This is the gate of righteousness. This is the single point of entry if we are going to have life with God in this age and the age to come. I'd like for you to imagine for me for a moment that you have a friend that loves to talk about wonderful destinations all around the globe. They like to talk about, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to see the mountains of New Zealand or to stand on the shores of the Mediterranean, to go and to explore the pyramids of Egypt. And they, they go on and on about it. And when you say, well, well, when are you going to go do that? And they say, oh, well, I, I hate travel. No trains for me, no planes, no boats. I'm not about travel. And the realization is this, that as much as you love those destinations, you will never taste of them unless you're willing to travel. And the same is true for us, that if we long to be at home with God, to experience all the delights of heaven, we have to realize this. There is a point of entry. There is something that is required to taste that, and it's the humble trust in Jesus. And maybe that you ask the question, why would there be only one point of entry? Why wouldn't God have three or seven or 70 million And the reality is this, brothers and sisters, friends, please hear me on this. God did not have to open the way to his presence. He would have been totally just to wash his hands of us, but he was willing to say, this is the gate by which you might enter. The real question is how in the world could God make a way for sinners like us into his presence, but he has. And as Jesus was singing this song, it was little blaze in his heart saying, this is the gate of righteousness, my suffering, my conquering of death. You see, but he doesn't stop there. The second conclusion that awakens in his heart beautifully is this. This is the Lord's doing. Did you see it in verse 23? He said, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now it's an interesting undertaking to try to answer the question, who is it that was responsible for the death of Jesus? Have you ever thought about it? Have you ever tried to answer that question? In part we might say, well, the religious leaders, they were out for blood, the Pharisees were threatened by Jesus and wanted to put him to death. We could say, well, well Judas, Judas was the betrayer that sold Jesus, he was responsible. We could say, well, it was the cowardice of Pilate. Pilate is the one that allowed him to be condemned to death. Or it was the Roman guards. They brutalized him. They're the ones who put the, put the nails into his hands. They're responsible for his death. Or we could say, we're all culpable because all of humanity is sinful. And he was absorbing the wrath for sin in that moment. So we're all responsible. But the answer underneath and beyond all of those answers is this. God did it. This is the Lord's doing From the beginning of time in Genesis chapter 3, as soon as humanity was separated from the presence of God, God said, I'm coming for you. And I'm coming by the seed of the woman. In Genesis 3.15, it's a very interesting phrase. It's already hinting at a virgin birth. Written some 1,400 years before Jesus was born, saying the seed of the woman is coming. And he'll be bruised, but he's going to conquer And then a full thousand years before in the Psalm that we preached through last week, Psalm 22, David steps through what crucifixion is going to look like in a prophetic way that could not have been captured except by divine means. 700 years before in Isaiah chapter 53, we are told that the father was pleased. It was his will to put the son to death, that he was wounded for our transgressions, that his stripes heal us. Do you hear it? Please don't miss this. For centuries and for millennia, God was calling the shot. He was proving himself as God. He was establishing that Jesus is, in fact, divine and that his payment is sufficient for us. This is not something that has been accomplished by humanity or by our energy or efforts. This is God's doing. He was willing in this moment to, in a mysterious and even a miraculous way to turn his face away from his own son because it was his doing. And as it dawns on the human heart, and I'm just begging even now by the power of the Spirit that it might dawn on your heart and my heart, the love of the Father for you and for me. When it dawns on us that he had been thinking of us for centuries and for millennia, saying, I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you. I have affection for you. I will pay any price to win you back to myself. I will stop at nothing, even the great pain and sadness, the death of my only begotten son. When this begins to dawn on us, what we realize is that our God is big enough and good enough to use even brokenness for his glory. Ah! We realize that he wins victories in the midst of darkness. We realize that there is no pandemic or plague that can rob us of our joy and our hope because we stand in this space looking at a bloody cross and an empty tomb and saying the steadfast love of God endures forever and it's proven in this way. He delivers through distress. And he delivered through distress finally and completely in his son Jesus in a way that was orchestrated for millennia because he loves you because he would stop at nothing to win you to himself. I'm stunned when I look back at the, the outline of Jonathan Edwards' first sermon that he ever preached when he was 18 years old, called The Happiness of the Christian. Three points. Like all good preachers, you gotta have good, three solid points, right? Jonathan Edwards said this, if you are in Christ, three things that you know to be true that will secure your happiness. One, all the bad things will turn out good. Two, all the good things will never be taken from you. Three, the best is yet to come. This is our identity in Jesus. This is the Lord's doing. And when we realize that he can use death and sadness and heartache to win these kinds of victories, we say, oh, that is marvelous in our eyes. You see, this is the gate by which the righteous will enter. This is the Lord's doing. And then finally, in verse 22, this is cause for rejoicing. Look at verse 24. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. What does he mean when he says, this is the day? It's not that the psalmist is just saying, well, the sun is shining. And the jasmine is blooming and it smells delightful. Isn't this, this is the day the Lord has made. He's not talking in general. He's using a specific this. And the same way that he has previously. That is lit ablaze and becomes true, is fulfilled in Jesus. That the, this he is talking to, talking about is the day where the steadfast love of God is displayed as he delivers through distress. Through this one that was pushed hard and was falling, that was disciplined was severely, even to the point of death, yet was delivered into life. He's talking about Easter in advance. Prophetically, when he says, this is the day that the Lord has made, he's talking about Easter. He's talking about an empty tomb, a stone rolled away, a declaration that death does not tell your story and my story. Sadness and tears does not tell your story and my story. We have a living king who has conquered This is the day that the Lord has made. This is the day that demands our joy. You see, an empty tomb and new life demands joy. I must admit the the quarantine is weird. That's the word that keeps coming up in the conversations that I have for people. I know it's hard for us. I know it's weird. It's not, and I keep thinking I'm gonna wake up from this dream. And as hard as it's been, and we carry the weight of the sadness of those who are experiencing real loss. But I must admit, in the midst of all of that swirl of emotion, it's been sweet to be at my home with my family. And I feel like I'm being tutored. I'm being tutored by three boys as my wife and I spend time with them. We're being reminded what it means to obey this last injunction. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Do you know what the Hebrew word is for rejoicing there? It's one that kids don't forget about. It's one that my boys continue to teach me me about. The word for rejoicing literally means this, turn in circles, spin about, be dizzied with the realities of present joy that has been secured because of future promises. That we actually, he's saying, we should be dizzied by the joy that has been secured for us through distress, that we have a God that meets us in the midst of distress and breeds life and wholeness. And so what we want to be is a people that are led by the little ones, reminded that today we are alive and we have hope for the future because our King is alive and is on the throne. Easter is cause for dizzying joy. Because we all gather together and we say the steadfast love of God does in fact endure. It endures through death itself, through plague and distress and heartache and sadness. The love of God endures and the reason we know, the reason we know, is because Jesus sang this song with his life. As he was bleeding and dying, looking out at at his people, Peering into your heart and mind, what he was saying is, this is the gate. Enter in by faith. What he was saying is, this is the Lord's doing. He's done it because he loves you and he's committed to his own glory. He's displaying his character in a way that the world can never deny. And as that dawns on our souls, we spin with joy and we say, God, thank you. Dizzying joy because of Easter promises. Would you please pray with me? Gracious God and Father, uh, we thank you and we bless you that this is unshakably true. You called your shot centuries in advance in a way that humanity could not deny it. Jesus, you fulfilled all of the prophecies about you in ways that no human being can manipulate or maneuver, that history declares that it is true that we have a, an empty tomb, a resurrected king, and we as a people now know, we, we are reveling in the fact that this means we have great hope for tomorrow, that we have cause for joy, even as we walk in distress. Thank you that your steadfast love endures and that you deliver even out of distress. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.